title of the message today is Rags to Robes. Now, I'll be honest with you, this is a passage I would much rather skip over, <laughs> but I'm not allowed the luxury of picking and choosing, not looking to be popular, I'm looking to be biblical. And sometimes the, the Bible is like medicine, uh, it is bitter when it goes down, but it is for the healing of our soul, and it is for our good. So we've got a tough message today, rags to robes. As I was reading this passage and thinking about it this week, I went back in my mind as a kid growing up, my mom and dad's uh, old home place. Now my dad's parents, that was my mamaw and papaw, they lived next door to us. And I got to spend a lot of time with my papaw and learn about his peculiar hillbilly ways. He was a mountain man through and through. He dipped skull tobacco. Uh, he loved to eat Whopper hamburgers with extra mayonnaise. He never got in a hurry for anything. And for some reason, he liked to keep a fire going year-round in the wood stove. He loved his wood fire, even in the summer. But I can remember getting up early one fall morning and going out next door to eat breakfast with Mamaw and Papaw. And that was a treat. Because uh, you knew you was going to get real brown gravy. I'm not talking about stuff from a can. I'm talking about the real stuff that uh, it's running out of style today. Not many people still know how to fix it, but my mamaw, uh, she knew how to do it. Man, she'd make those cathead biscuits, and I don't even think she measured. Uh, she'd roll those things out and just you ask her what was in it. She'd say a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Sausage, bacon, eggs, jelly, toast, gravy, you, you name it, it was there. But there was frost on the ground, the air was chilly that day, and after breakfast, Papaw's first chore was to, to stoke the, the fire in his wood shop. And before we went up to the shop to build that fire, I followed him into an old storage room that was adjacent to their carport. And you walked in this storage room, it was like a cave almost. It was dark, dank, and hanging on a nail was my Papaw's old blue jean jacket. As he took the coat down and he started to, to put it on, I noticed that something began to move up the sleeve on the inside of that jacket. And instinctively, my papaw just latched on to that scurrying lump that was about halfway up his shoulder now at this time. And his hands started to clamp down and he started to squeeze on whatever it was that was inside that jacket. And I can remember standing there in the cold and my eyes got about as big as hubcaps and Papaw's hands squeezed down on that like an old vice. And after what seemed like a long time, Papaw held on and that, that bulge in his jacket quit squirming. And I stepped in real slowly and I can still remember him calmly removed the sleeve of that jacket and when he did, we saw what the culprit was. It was a fat ugly rat who knows how long only God knows but that rat had curled up inside his jacket and found it to be a warm place from the cold frost now I can I will never forget that image of Papaw pulling that old nasty dead rat by the tail out of that jacket and you know what to this day I can't ever remember him wearing that jacket again. 
Of course, you know, Papa, he's, he's gone to be with the Lord, but I'll always have that peculiar story. And as, I, as gross as that was, I began to think about that in terms of our passage today, and I, I wonder how many of us have a rat named sin that is making a home in our wardrobe. That sin has, has snuck in, and it has curled, and it has become content nesting in our lives. It's gotten fat and happy. Now, none of us would share our coat with a nasty rat. And likewise, we would not expect that a Christ follower would tolerate a nasty sin in their life. And if that's the case, then what we need to do is kill the rat and get a new jacket or get a new lifestyle. Amen? Now, that may sound graphic or maybe even extreme to some ears, but that is the exact imagery that Paul uses in today's passage. Because in Colossians 3 and verse 5, you'll notice there he says, Put to death, therefore. If you're reading the old King James, it might say, Mortify. And then, in other words, what he's saying there is, Kill the rat. Then in verse 3, 9, he says to put off the old sinful behaviors. In verse 3 and 10, to put on the new self. In other words, to remove the old sinful lifestyle like a ratty, tattered jacket. Take it off and get a new life. Evangelist Vance Havner, he once quipped saying that, quote, too many church members are starched and ironed but not washed. What he meant by that is that they have a rigid outer trapping of religion, but they haven't been truly cleansed and clothed by Christ. Now in today's passage, Paul explains how salvation in the believer's life brings about a change that is akin to taking off the rags of sin and exchanging them for the robes of Jesus Christ. Just as we're to take off the old dirty garments, we must discard of the old sinful patterns and habits. And if you're wondering, yes, I am one of those preachers who still believes that sin is sin. And that we ought not airbrush it or label it according to man's thinking, try and make it sound better than what it really is. God says it's sin. It's the sin that sent Jesus to the cross, and if it's in our lives, then maybe today what we need to do is kill a rat. Rags to robes. If you notice in our text here today, I want you to see that Paul talks about this in two major movements. Number one, the rags of the old life. The rags of the old life. Now this passage has both a positive and a negative command. And Paul gives us the negative first by telling us what to remove from our lives. Like that old nasty jacket. Remove it. Because before you can put on the new clothes, you have to take off the old. So, we see what we must remove. And Paul gives three categories. The first of which is hedonistic lust. We must remove hedonistic lust. Notice verse 5, he says... Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
Now you might call that list the sinister six. These deadly sins have a common source and it is in lust. Go down the list with me. Sexual immorality, that begins as lust for a a man or a woman that is not our spouse. Covetousness, that's lust for more and more. Whether that be possessions or pleasure or power, it's a, a discontentment with what God has given us. Idolatry then, also in that list, is lust gone wild. That's when we elevate something to the level of God and we worship anyone or anything and give it the rightful place of God in our lives. And anything can become an idol. Now, every day in this nation, we are hitting upon the first in that list in verse 5, sexual immorality, aren't we? Every day in this nation... We are looking more like Sodom. We are morally unzippered and sexually unhinged. Now the Greek word in the text for sexual immorality is the word pornea, which we derive our English term pornography. Now pornea is a junk drawer term. It refers to any illicit sex outside of marriage. Pornea covers everything from Pornography, of course, to fornication, to adultery, to homosexuality. It's all under that same umbrella of hedonistic lust that Paul says, hey, if you're going to walk in the manner of Christ, you have to cut this stuff out. Because if you go down this road, it's only going to lead to heartache and pain. Now, we live in a digital age where we have instant access to the Internet that provides sexual immorality right at the touch of our fingers. Listen to some of these statistics that I, I marinated in this week. Experts tell us that almost one-third of all Internet traffic is porn-related, 30%. One-third of Internet traffic! That's mind-boggling. Porn sites receive, listen to this, more visits than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined each month. Porn is a global business, which in 2018, listen to this, generated $97 billion. And you know what the the fastest growing area of that is? Child pornography. God help us. And we say, I'm not hurting anybody. Yeah, right, that's somebody's daughter. That's somebody's son. (laughs) Where we've just used them and and abused them and, and... and got our fix and thrown them away like a piece of trash and on to the next one. What a lie the devil has told us. I'm not hurting anybody. Somehow we forget that behind that screen is a, is a real person. Somebody that Jesus died for. And, and, and we're not to devalue them to just a, an object of our own fulfillment. God help us. I can go on here in these statistics That $97 billion, that means that porn generates more income, listen to this, than all pro sports combined. NBA, MLB, NFL, NHL, etc. All professional sports. In 2018, listen to this, the world's largest porn website reported that consumers watched over 5.5 billion hours of porn. That means collectively... Humanity spent 629,000 years, that one year, watching X-rated content. That's just one website. 
Oh my goodness. Parents, especially today in this digital age, we must be diligent and vigilant and careful about what is coming into our child's lives through those tablets, through those phones. I was reading an article one after another of heartbreak after heartbreak of 12, 13, 14-year-old little girls who are approached online by predators who don't care and who would do the most unspeakable things to those precious little girls. Parents, are we aware? Christians, are we aware that we are literally drowning in a sea of filth in our culture? Listen to what Jesus said. In case you think this is just a harmless act, I'm not hurting anybody. Jesus said this, Matthew 5 and verse 28, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully by the way, guilty as charged, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Begins in the heart. That includes the church as well, doesn't it? I personally know couples whose marriages have been utterly ruined by pornography addiction. That a wife feels just as much betrayal in that area as if the man would have gone off and had a physical affair with another flesh and blood woman. I know men, young men, whose minds are literally warped. They can never have another normal relationship with a woman because they have this fantasy in their mind that's been created by pornography addiction. And they're scarred for life. God help us. If you're addicted to the porn this morning, for the sake of your soul, kill the rat. Kill it for your soul, for yourself. Paul says, look at this list. Man, I wish I, I, wish I could make this easier, but we've got to deal with it, don't we? It's in the Word of God. He talks about hedonistic lust, but then he also moves on in verse 8, a hateful lifestyle. Boy, Paul was an equal opportunity offender, wasn't he? <laughs> He's going to hit on everybody's sin today. Verse 8, notice this. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Notice those three. Anger, wrath, malice. That's a hateful lifestyle. And, and anger and hatred bulls out of the heart just like lust does. Jesus equated adultery and anger in the very same way. If you go back in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22 and, and look at this passage from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus connects that murder begins in the heart. And this lifestyle, this can range from road rage to racism to bitterness over past hurts and unforgiveness to yelling at your kids. <laughs> I've been there. In, in the heat of the moment, anger can make us say and do things that will cause a lifetime of regret. You know what anger really is, by the way? It's, it's a form of temporary insanity. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when it takes me a lot to get me over the edge. But when I go over the edge, Katie bar the door. Just get out of the way because I'm gone. You like that? You don't have to raise your hand. But I'm preaching to myself just as much as I am 
to you today. And by the way, anger on a lighter note. You may think you've got this thing of anger, wrath, and malice conquered until you walk through your house at 3 o'clock in the morning and you step on a Hot Wheels car or a Lego block. (laughs) You think you might have arrived in your sanctification process, but you step on a toy in the middle of the night and you're going to sound like Yosemite Sam, and you're back in the flesh. Right? Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I need God's help. I heard about a father who was trying to teach his hot-headed son about controlling his temper. And so every time this, this young boy got angry, the father not only disciplined him, but he took him outside to a fence post and he handed him a hammer and nails. And the father began to explain to the little boy. He said, son, he said, we're going to tame that temper of yours and here's how we're going to do it. He said, every time that you lose your cool... Not only am I going to discipline you, but you're going to come out here and I want you to nail a nail into this fence post. Well, after a summer of this, the boy got really tired of doing that exercise. He'd get angry. Dad would discipline him. He'd go out, nail a nail in the fence post. He did this all summer until the day arrived when he finally did learn how to control his anger. And he came to his dad. He said, Daddy, I've got good news. He said, little sister came in my room and messed everything up, and I didn't yell at her. He said, great, son. He said, let's go out to the fence post. He said, son, here's the second part of the lesson. He said, now that you have seemingly got a hold of your anger, here's the hammer. He said, I want you now to take out all those nails that you nailed in that fence post. He said, go ahead. I'll come back in a little bit. So the boy, he, he sweated, he strained with all of his might to take all of those nails out. Dad came back after about a half an hour to check on his progress. And he said, very good, son, after he had removed all those nails. He said, I hope that you learned the lasting lesson today. Look at the holes in the fence. You see, that fence, son, will never be the same. Because when you say or do hurtful things out of anger, they leave a scar. A hole. That will always be there. I'm reminded time and time again that I have to work on this. You know, there's nothing more humbling in a dad's life than when he has to get down on the level of his children with tears in his eyes and ask forgiveness from his children because he lost his cool. I've done that. I've been there. Had to, with tears in my eyes, weeping to my son and say, Daddy, sorry. He shouldn't have treated you like that way. He shouldn't have said that the way that he did. But Daddy's a sinner and and Daddy needs Jesus. And God reminds me, you're not there yet. You've got a ways to go. Hateful lifestyle. Paul says, take it off. Kill the rat of hedonistic lust. And then he moves on and he talks about harmful language. Look what he says in verse 8 and 9. But he says, now you must put away the slander, the obscene talk from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. Brother James also warns us of the destructive power of the tongue. He calls it in James 3, a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It is restlessness of evil, full of deadly poison. You see, with our words, we can assassinate our friends. 
We can spin a web of lies. We can pollute the airways with profanity. We can, with just a few words, compromise our Christian witness. You know, the Bible says that God has a hate list in Proverbs 6. One of the things on that list, according to Proverbs 6, 16 and 17, there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven of them are an abomination. Haughty eyes, and watch this, a lying tongue. You know, we live in this area of social media, and we today have created a new way of lying. It's by fluffing our profiles to show a more polished version of ourselves to the world. Pastor and author Kyle Eidelman, he, he writes about this in one of his books. Listen to what he says. He says, quote, Social media can be a tool for good or evil. We can tell the truth with it, or we can use it as a way to spread fake news. When it is used for evil, we tend to hype ourselves through the use of it. It is designed to show us at our best. It can be a form of self-publicity where we tend to post idealized versions of ourselves in hopes we will be liked. Aren't we insecure creatures? He says, our little screens and the amount of time we obsess over them seems to lead to performance over transparency. Paul says, don't lie to one another. And by the way, that reminds me of a t-shirt that I saw a kid wearing the other day. <laughs> and it was so true. Here's what the t-shirt said. May your life someday be as awesome as you pretend it is on Facebook. <laughs> true. But there's also another harmful part of our language that Paul denounces here in verse 8. It's slander. Which often, and if you've been in Baptist life, church life very long, you know how this works. Slander often takes the form of juicy gossip in church circles. Sometimes even in the prayer circle. I heard this about so and so. We need to pray for them. But really it wasn't about praying for them. It was about passing on a little juicy nugget you know gossip is the devil's radio and every time that we pass it along we become his dj and this is a double-edged sword by the way if you think about it because if they will gossip to you what's to stop them from gossiping about you and how many churches have been divided and destroyed? How many ministries have been run into the ground? How many people in the church have been assassinated by a wagging tongue? Somebody who got on Facebook and posted something. Somebody who got on the phone and started telling stuff and didn't have the whole story. God help us as a church to, to kill that rat. I love the story that Chuck Swindoll told in one of his books got to kind of lighten the mood a little bit in a sermon like this listen to this he said Mildred the church gossip and self-appointed monitor of the church's morals kept sticking her nose into other people's business several members did not approve of her extracurricular activities but feared her enough to maintain their silence she made a mistake however when she accused George a new member of being an alcoholic after she saw his old pickup parked in front of the town's only bar one afternoon. She emphatically told George and several others that everyone seeing it there would know what he was doing. George, a man of few words, stared at her for a moment 
and just turned and walked away. He didn't explain, defend, or deny. He said nothing. But later that evening, George quietly parked his pickup in front of Mildred's house and left it there all night. <laughs> oh my goodness. They say it's a dish best served cold. But seriously, think of your tongue as a messenger that runs errands for your heart. Our words reveal what is going on in the heart. Jesus said it like this, Luke 6 and 45, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces the good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If the tongue is a bucket and the heart is a well, then what is in the well is going to come up in the bucket. So what's going in the well? Is it poisoned or is it good? I, I love this acrostic. I don't know who made it, but I wrote it down and I've kept it. I would suggest that we think before we speak. T-H-I-N-K. The next time you have one of those things that you're about to say and not really sure if you should say it, like the Holy Spirit just grabs you at the moment you're about to say it, think. T, is it true? H, is it helpful? I, is it inspiring? N, is it necessary? K, is it kind? Whew. Aren't you glad that part of the sermon's over with? <laughs> I told you Paul is an equal opportunity offender. He hit me, just like he probably hit you with that message. But he talks in here about what we are to remove, and then B, why we are to remove it. Notice this, Paul gives two simple reasons why we must kill the sin in our lives, why we must take off that old dirty rag. First off is this, sin brings on punishment. Sin brings on punishment. Notice verse 6, he says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. I think about the old adage that the evangelist Billy Sunday had, Sin fascinates and then it assassinates. Sin thrills and then it kills. We ought to renounce these sins, Paul says, in our lives if for no other reason than I don't want to suffer the consequences of sin in my life. Nor do I want God to have to take me to the divine woodshed. If you've ever been there before and you had to be under the hand of God's discipline, yes, you were grateful for it when it was over, but man, was it hard to go through. But God says, if you're mine, I'll discipline you. And moreover, we ought to declare war on these sins because how could we excuse the very thing that nailed Jesus to the cross? It's my lust, it's my anger. It's my lies, it's my sin and my evil that put Christ on the cross and therefore for that very reason I ought to kill it, I ought to hate it. It's the thing that took the life of my Savior. A few years ago I read a story. It was on Fox News about a South Carolina farmer. The man's name was Samson Parker. This farmer was out in his field. He was mowing down a field of old corn shucks. And he got one of those shucks stuck in his, his combine machine. 
he got off his machine and he tried to remove the cornstalk. But when he did, a piece of his shirt got caught in the machine and it drug his arm inside that grinder. He was trapped for about an hour in this field all alone with his arm shredded up, caught inside this machine. Get the picture. The story said that because of such stress on the machine with it being jammed up, that it started to spark and it caught fire. So now the ground around him is on fire. His arm is stuck. He's about to die. And the article said that Samson Parker only had one choice in that moment. Somehow with his other arm, he reached in his pocket, opened up his knife, and began sawing the arm. You say, preacher, I didn't come to church to hear about that today. But here's what happened in the story. Amazingly, Samson Parker lived. He had to cut through his own flesh to get free. And it reminded me of what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Matthew 5 and verse 30, he said this, If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than the whole body go into hell. Paul says, look at your life if there's a rat in your wardrobe, it's time to kill that thing, to cut it off, to, to declare war on it. Because that's the thing that brings about God's judgment. He says we ought to do away with sin because it brings on punishment. But then also, I love this part, verse 7. I promise you there's a silver lining in this sermon. And don't think I'm beating you up. I'm not. This is the part where grace comes in, right? You have to know the bad news before the good news can be really good. <laughs> Look at what verse 7 says. Glory to God. He says, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. What does Paul say here? He says, Look, you should discard of the sin because that's in the past. <laughs> That's not who you are now in Christ. That's who you were. So the second reason to cast off the old rags of sin is because, hey, those clothes don't fit me anymore. <laughs> they don't fit with my calling, my position, my blood-washed stature in the body of Jesus Christ. I can take that old nasty garment, I can kill the rat, and I can live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because I ain't who I used to be. I'm born again. It's in the past. I love the way that the Message Bible paraphrases this. Listen to the way it comes out. It wasn't long ago that you were doing all that stuff and not knowing any better. Right? Sinners act like sinners, don't they? Because they don't know about God's goodness and God's grace. They don't know anything else. But you know better now. He said, you're done with that old life. It's like a fifth he said of old ill-fitting clothes you've stripped off and put in the fire. Praise God. <laughs> now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. What a convicting verse. If we ever get to the point in our lives where we begin to look down on others because their sin looks a different color than ours. You know what I'm saying? We can do that in church. We can judge other people by their sin. But Paul says, look, <laughs> think about who you once were. Before Christ came along in your life. Have a little grace with that person who's not yet got it yet. Who's not yet understood the grace of God. Who's still 
in the church, but not, but not yet got to maturity. That's who you once were, Paul says. Thank God that my past is past. Amen? Thank God that God loves us the way that we are, but that God loves us enough not to leave us that way. Thank God that He'll get down in the dirt with us. That He'll pull us up. That He'll clean us off. That He'll give us a a new heart and a new life and a new set of clothing and say, get out there and live for me. Thank God He accepts us as we are and loves us in our sin. Not just some future version of who we will be, but in that broken person that we are right now, God loves us. Oh my, I love the words that the Paul Williams trio have that song. I used to be a beggar. I had no silver or gold. My house was just a cabin. My clothes were ragged and old. But one day, I went to an altar. I bowed on my knees in prayer. Jesus reached down and touched me. And I came up a millionaire. That's where he moves on here in verses 10 and 11. He's talked about the rags of the old life. But praise God, he speaks in these last two verses about the robes of the new life. Oh, the robes of the new life. Notice with me verse 10. He says, And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. Isn't it interesting that Paul uses this idiom of changing clothes as a way of picturing salvation and sanctification? Because if you study the Bible, there's several times in Jesus' ministry where He reached out, He healed someone, and He touched them, and the evidence of the new life was seen in their clothing. You say, what do you mean? Example, after Jesus cast out the legion of demons, that man who was tortured, who was cutting himself, who was living among the graves, you remember that in Mark 5? Jesus cast out the legion of demons from him, and Mark 5.15 says this, And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, watch this, clothed (laughs) and in his right mind. Same happened to Lazarus when Jesus raised him from the dead. As Lazarus emerged from the darkness of that tomb into the daylight, you know what Jesus said to him? John 11 and verse 44, Unbind him, take off the grave clothes. The prodigal son, slopping around in the the filth and the, the pigs, came to his senses and when he got home, the father ran out embraced him and you know what he said in Luke 15 22 bring out quickly <laughs> bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet and oh by the way kill the fatted calf because he who was lost has been found I'm telling you we serve a God today who loves to save sinners the dirtier, the better. The more messed up, the better. You let Christ get a hold of them. The, 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 the deranged and the sin sick, the people that have no hope, no answer, and no way out, hand them over to Jesus Christ. He'll do a miracle in their life, clean them up, and robe them in His righteousness. They say clothes don't make the man, but I'm telling you in this case, when Christ makes you new and you're robed in His righteousness, it means everything. Robes of the new life. 
Not only are we spiritually clothed in His righteousness, but we are outwardly clothed in His character. Right? Walk in the new man. God formed man in the garden. Sin deformed man. Education may inform man. Religion may try and reform man. But only Christ can transform a man. And that's what He does. Notice the phrase that He uses here, verse 10 that we might be renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. You know what that points to? It points to the fact that the change, when the change takes place, when the old man is gone and the new man has come, you know where it begins? Right here. Between the ears. The gray matter of the mind. Look at the verse. Renewed in the knowledge after the image of His Creator. Do not be conformed to this world. What does Paul say? But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. You didn't realize how messed up your mind was until Jesus Christ got a hold of it and corrected your thinking and your worldview, the warped way you used to look at things. You see, this is a continual lifelong process. My mind can fall in the gutter every single day, can it? But putting on a new man, listen, requires a daily brainwashing in the Bible. I have to clean my mind out by the Word of God. Just as I would change my socks in the morning, I have to ask God, God, change my mind every day. Renew it under the knowledge of the image of the One who made me. Notice as you grow in the knowledge of the Word of God, you'll be changed by the Spirit of God so that you'll look more like the Son of God. And the process of putting on the old man and putting on Christ, you know what? That goes on every day until we get to heaven. Every day when we get up, we do battle with the old flesh, the old man who still wants to hang on, still wants to creep out, still wants to come uh, to the forefront when we lose our temper, when we're tempted to look at something that we ought not to, when somebody does something to us the wrong way and we want to say something about it. The old man will always be there. But Paul says, put on Christ. And it happens every day. Every day is battle. And ultimately, here's the good news. <laughs> ultimately, the day is going to come when we'll lay down this old tent, this old robe of flesh. And Jesus is going to hand us garments that are fit for eternity. Look at what He said in Revelation 3, 4, this promise to the church at Sardis. He says, yet... You have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, watch this, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Oh, friend, won't it be great one day when we can lay aside the battle, when it's all said and done, and we can walk in eternity in glory with Christ, in perfect righteousness, in a glorified, sinless, deathless, ageless, painless body. Paul says, take off, take off that old man. Put on that new man until you cross the finish line and you get to glory. Max Licato tells this story in one of his books about not being properly dressed. I know when I'm not properly dressed because as I'm getting ready, I'll go to my wife and I'll say, are you ready, honey? And she'll say, 
are you going out of here like that? I know I have not properly dressed myself in a way that makes her look good. Because she cares about how I look. Right? You're going out of here looking like that? Translation to the men, get back in there and change, right? Max Licato tells this story in one of his books about not being properly dressed. He said this, The mater d' wouldn't change his mind. He didn't care that it was our honeymoon. It didn't matter that the evening at the classy country club restaurant was a wedding gift. He said, All of this was immaterial in comparison to the looming problem. I wasn't wearing a jacket. I didn't know I needed one, he said. I thought the sports shirt was sufficient. It was clean, it was tucked in, but Mr. Black Tie with a French accent was unimpressed. He seated everyone else, but Mr. and Miss Debonair, were, they were given a table, but Mr. and Miss didn't wear a jacket. We're out of luck. There's got to be something you can do, I pleaded. He looked at me, he looked at my wife, and he let out a long sigh that puffed his cheeks. All right, let me see. He disappeared into the cloakroom and emerged with a jacket. Put this on. I did. The sleeves were too short. The shoulders were too tight. And the color? <laughs> Lime green. But I didn't complain. I had a jacket and we were taken to our table. For all the inconvenience of that evening, he said, we ended up with a great dinner and an even greater parable. Listen to this. I needed a jacket. But all I had was a prayer. This fellow was too kind to turn me away, but too loyal to lower the standard. So the very one who required a jacket gave me a jacket, and then we were seated at the table. Isn't that what happened at the cross? Seats at God's table were not available to the sloppy, sinful, and raggedy. If we're honest, our moral clothing is in disarray. It's unkempt, it's tattered, it's sin-stained. And yet the standard for sitting at God's table is high. It's pure holiness. But the love of God found a way to clothe us. Not a lime-colored jacket pulled from a cloakroom, but a seamless robe of Christ's pure righteousness. I gave Him my rags, and He gave me His robe. Oh my goodness. I get to take off the rags and walk in the robe. Oh my friend, have you traded your rags for rose today? He's a loving God, a merciful God, but He's a holy God. But the good news is, He doesn't lower the standard. He requires holiness and He provides that in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. I don't know what your life looks like. I don't know what your past is all about. I don't know what you believe about God and the Bible and Christ right now, but I'm telling you, He loves you. He would love nothing more than to save you, clean you up, bring you into His forever family, and give you a new set of clothes to wear. Our musicians are coming. Hey, if you need the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, it's available today. Free and full. You and I can have it. You'll find that He's a great God. A worthy God. And as our musicians are playing, will you stand?
Hey, will you do business with God right now? I'm asking you to be honest in yourself. Hey, as I looked at that list this week of sins, every one of them was hitting me upside the head. I knew I was guilty. I don't have a hope. But I know Jesus. And I know God loves to save sinners. If you're struggling today, hey, it's time to kill the rat. Time to get serious about it. Grab a stranglehold around it until it's dead in your life. Let's get victory today, right? Let's walk in the robes of Christ. Come today if you need prayer, if you need encouragement, if you need Christ, if you need salvation, rededication, whatever. You come today and find His rich goodness.